and we'll read the scriptures in just a minute. Oh, Father, oh, God, we call upon your name, having confessed our sins, we're open, we're not hiding it, but we openly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he has risen from the dead. And this is our hope and our glory for you to work even now in our hearts, to en enlarge our hearts for our love for you, to enlarge our hearts so that we might understand a little bit more of the depths of the riches of the gospel that are ours in Jesus. It's to you we come, who created all things. And so, Lord, we're asking that your hand that is so loving and shepherding would shepherd our, us this morning, and that your voice that is so gentle and soft and yet like a sword would pierce us where we need to be pierced because you deserve our praise. You deserve our obedience. You deserve, you deserve, Lord, all things that are good. And so we lift up our hearts and our minds to you that you might work in us and in our children and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've said a few things repeatedly about the Christians at Colossae since beginning our study of this amazing little letter. We have said that the Christians there at Colossae were commended by the Apostle Paul for their love for and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but that they were in danger of falling prey to a false gospel with its false promises. False teachers were saying to them that faith in Jesus Christ was good. It was, it was okay. It was good. But it wasn't enough for a deep spiritual fullness. Follow our personal little secrets, and we'll show you the way to the deeper, more mature life. That's why these kinds of Jesus plus teachings can be very dangerous. What Christian doesn't want to be more mature? Is there anyone here who does not thirst for greater spiritual fullness and to manifest in their life a greater reflection of all that God has done for them in the gospel. Is there anyone here? And so these, these voices that come into the church, these ideas are alluring, especially to recent converts. And the Colossians were recent converts. 
You know, it seems that whenever false ideas about the gospel are promoted in the church, they are usually ideas that add some kind of works to faith. And I really believe that it's alluring to us because these works give us, as Christians, the feeling like we're suddenly spiritual. We weren't yesterday, but because we're following this particular path uh, of Judaism and its ideology and its rituals, all of a sudden, I feel like I'm doing something. And so I'm more spiritual. We can't get more spiritual by doing anything. The fullness of life is only in Jesus Christ. And in this letter, Paul gives us indications here and there, the dangerous teachings that were going around this young church in Colossae, vain intellectualism. It's unbelievable how the Reformed world is, to me, so much full of vain intellectualism. The worship of angels, following Old Testament Jewish ideology, but mostly, he gives indications of these things, but mostly what the apostle does, especially in the first half of the letter, is he explains who Jesus is and what he has done for us in the gospel. Children, your pastor really wants you to get excited about learning about two things, who Jesus is and what he has done for you in the gospel. Children, it would be, if you get excited about Jesus and the gospel, it would, it would, it would strengthen your faith and it would humble you too at the same time. In other words, you get excited about Jesus and the gospel, and you're not going to walk around thinking you're better than anybody else because you're doing something particular. The gospel lifts us up, and it also humbles us. And children, once you realize that Jesus is an absolutely inexhaustible treasure for you as a sinner... You're going to want to live for him out of a life of thankfulness and love. And this is exactly why Paul wrote the letter, to make us all that way, young and old. He wrote it to say that Jesus is more than enough because he is preeminent over all things. And in him, we have riches untold in the gospel. If you weren't here last week, we found the Apostle Paul actually breaking out into a doxology of praise to the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1. And that's where we are in our study. In this doxology, he first exalted Christ as preeminent over all creation, we considered that last week. He's, 
He's preeminent over all creation. We'll read those verses again. But this morning we will find the Apostle Paul sliding right into the fact that he's also preeminent over redemption. And he exalts him because he's preeminent over creation and over redemption. So if you'll please stand with me. I'm going to read Colossians chapter 1, just the doxology, verses 15 through 20. Reading God's word once again, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You may be seated. Christ is preeminent over redemption first, Paul says, because he is the firstborn from the dead. Verse 18b. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And what the apostle clearly means here is that Christ is preeminent in redemption. This is really wonderful. It's absolutely marvelous. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. What does Paul mean by that? What he means is that Jesus Christ is the first one who rose from the dead with saving power and eternal significance. We read in God's word, don't we, that others had been raised from the dead, but all of them at some point and time died again. And these resurrections, all of them, pointed to this one that we are talking about this morning. Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead because he is alive forevermore and because his resurrection marks the beginning of a glorious new age for the people of God. In the original, it literally says this. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead ones. 
That means that Jesus did not rise only for his own sake, but especially for the sake of bringing all of God's people from death to new life in a resurrection of their own, both in the heart and in a future bodily resurrection where we will realize the fullness of our salvation. The lamb who was slain as the one final atoning sacrifice for sins has risen to new life and has ushered in a new beginning for you and for me. This new beginning was so complete that the apostles could now begin teaching believers in the church, young and old, that is absolutely mind-boggling, really. It's, but nonetheless, it's true, and here it is. They began teaching Christians that when Christ died on the cross, they died. And when Jesus rose from the dead, they rose with him. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, although your battle with sin is raging this morning, and although it will continue to rage until the Lord takes you home, you can still say today with the Apostle Paul, will you say this with the Apostle Paul? I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ, the risen Christ, lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. Yes, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I can't understand that. If you have any sense at all of your sin, I don't see how we can understand that he loved me and gave himself for me. And that there's something organic about all this. I have been crucified with Christ. Every single Christian should be able to say, after this sermon, Jesus has ushered in a new age of resurrection, and it is my beginning in him. Because everything he achieved in his death and resurrection, in all of its glorious fullness, is mine. The future blessing of heaven is mine. And because of what he did for me 2,000 years ago, heaven cannot be taken away from me. Even the future glorified resurrection of my dead body at his return is mine because of what he did for me 2,000 years ago. You can't add any new ideology or agenda of works to get more spiritual. You can't do anything 
of the opinion of men added to faith in Christ without just spinning your wheels because all it is is empty promises. Because he's done it all for you. The incomparable Christ in power and might has accomplished your redemption. It's done. It's over. He did it 2,000 years ago. He's the firstborn from the dead. And as the firstborn from the dead, he automatically becomes the first fruits. The firstborn from the dead becomes the first fruits of a future bodily resurrection, as we learn in 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm supposed to listen to someone who says to me that faith in Jesus is good, but he's not enough. Brothers and sisters, Jesus triumphed over all of the forces that stood against you. Your sin and what your sin actually deserves, death and hell for all eternity. And children, when you, when you start to grasp who Jesus is and what he has done for you, I mean, it really makes you sing out among the congregation of God's people. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. When you know that, And when you experience the gospel of Jesus Christ more and more until the day you die, and you will never get to the bottom of it, well, as you experience it more and more, you understand it more and more, and you praise God more and more, and it's reflected more and more in your life, you'll more easily, children, smell a rat when it comes into the church and you hear a voice of somebody trying to add works to faith with empty promises and a false gospel. That's why the Apostle Paul hammers on this like he does. He gives indications here and here and here about Judaism, waxing eloquently about worldly philosophies, uh, the worship of angels, living a life of asceticism. But he doesn't say a whole lot about them. He uses words that kind of give you an idea of the wording that they're using, fullness. All in all. And he applies those words to Jesus Christ alone. You know, Christ's resurrection and my being in Christ when he rose from the dead not only proves that Christ won my full redemption on the cross, but it sets the stage for resurrection living. He says later in the letter in Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is all we need. 
Jesus is everything we need in any program or ideology that undermines either who Jesus is or all that is ours in Jesus Christ should be shunned. Get behind me, Satan. I exalt one person, Jesus. Just one. Well, Christ is preeminent in redemption because he's the beginning the firstborn from the dead, but he's also preeminent, Paul says, because he's the head over the church. Verse 18a, he is the head of the body, the church. Everything regarding the redemption of Christ's church flows out of our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who else but Jesus could provide you with full atonement for your sin? Others have been crucified, it's true, but it was the cross of Christ that won us the game. Who else could provide us with a perfect righteousness than the man from heaven? Who could do it? No one but him. And this atonement and this necessary righteousness for salvation, praise God, children, is received through faith alone. You say yes to Jesus and no to your sin because Jesus has dealt with your sin. You've got everything. He clothes you, the Bible says, in his righteousness. That's what we love here. We love here. We're dressed in his righteousness alone. Well, won't you join this body of redeemed ones today? Won't you join? Today is the day of salvation. Escape the wrath of God due to your sin and join this marvelous body of believers of which Christ alone is the head, meaning all of the life flows from him into you since he is the head He's the source of life for the whole body. He's the fullness of life for the whole community of saints of all time in heaven and on earth because as God incarnate, he purchased this entire body of people with his own blood. In speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, Paul said to these elders, Pay careful attention to the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Why? Well, he goes on, I'm sorry. Care for the church of God. Why? Because Christ obtained the church of God with his own blood. Now, if God's word charges elders to care so tenderly, for the church of God. Can you imagine the care that Christ has for his body of believers since he is the one who won their redemption with his own blood? He is the head of that body, the source of fullness for that entire body. He is the sufficiency of life for the entire church. He is the one who fills all in all, Paul says later in his letter. 
And you have to realize this. I think it's so important that Christ being called the head of the body is more than just a metaphor. It's an actual organic relationship that Christ shares with us, his people. And this organic relationship is seen throughout the epistles whenever believers are said to be in Christ. For example, in Ephesians 1.3, Paul, speaking to believers, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with what? with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's too many of us, me included, who are looking for God to give me something and give it to me. Uh, Pastor, I mean, uh, Elder Thornton um, and I were talking uh, just the other day and we were saying, he was saying, and I was amening it. You know, I see this hill and I want to get over, I want to get to it, because I think it's going to satisfy me. And I work, and I get there, and I get there, and I get over that hill, and then the first thing I see is this bigger hill. I just got to have that. I got to get there, I got to get there. And you get there, and you struggle, and you work, and you plan, and it's, everything is just going great, and you get to the top of that hill. And your heart just sinks because there's this, this mountain, this tall mountain that you need to get over. We already have it. That's what Christians need to realize. We've already got it. It's ours. You don't learn this right when you get converted. You come into the church and you hear the apostolic teaching of, of God's word. And you hear the apostles starting to say that there, there's an organic relationship between the Savior and his body. And we are in him. And when he died, you died. And when he rose again, you actually rose with him to new life. We've already got it. That's why the prosperity gospel is so doggone dangerous. Because it always has people going to that next mountain of what God is going to give them. And it's a false gospel. Oh, I, I, I believe you. you know, faith in Christ, I, be, I believe it. It's a false gospel. It's faith plus compulsing over the unbiblical truth that God is there to get you wealthy and get you whatever you want. Jesus is preeminent in redemption because he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's preeminent because he's the head of the body and there's an organic relationship that we see there. And third, because in him all the fullness of God dwells. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The glory of God filled the tabernacle in the wilderness. Later, the glory of God filled the temple in Jerusalem. And these foreshadowed the coming of Christ in his incarnation and the fullness of deity that would dwell 
in him. Brothers and sisters, when you have Jesus, you literally have everything. When your children have Jesus' parents, they have everything. In this same letter, he says, it, it's in him that are hidden all, all wisdom and all knowledge. Do you want your children to be wise? Do you want your children to have proper knowledge? When you have Jesus, you have everything. And there's nothing more important for them to have besides Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 2.3 that all that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2 verses 9 and 10 repeat our text and then continue it. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. John, the apostle John in John 1.16 says, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And this is supposed to comfort us and lead us to greater thankful service and obedience to Christ, but it doesn't happen in a moment. It happens in attending to the means of grace that you are now attending to, the preached word and the sacraments and prayer. And it happens as you as an individual or a family sit down and read God's word and pray and struggle with all your might with God's help to find the gospel wherever you are or at least find a stream that heads to the cross. Well, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Now that's the kind of grace I need. How about you? And it's not just some old ordinary Joe that gives grace upon grace. It's Christ in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. And finally, Christ is the one who reconciles all things to himself. You feel like you're climbing a mountain with the Apostle Paul this morning because this is really the peak of everything he said. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the, uh, the head of the body. He, all the fullness of deity was uh, pleased to dwell in him. And, and now Christ is the one who reconciles all things things to himself. This is a prophecy we can depend upon. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's preeminent in redemption, all right. This takes a little explanation. When God created man, he gave him dominion over the whole earth. He gave man to be king, small k, over his dominion, 
the entire earth. He was told to subdue it and to rule over it. He gave him every plant. He gave him every animal. He gave him every bird. He gave him every fish. He gave him all living things. The earth was given to man by God to be his dominion and for him to rule over. But when Adam fell in sin, all of his posterity, you and me, all mankind, fell with him. But not only did mankind fall with Adam, his dominion fell with him. His kingdom fell with him. His entire kingdom. When man fell, creation fell. So not only was the relationship between man and God broken because of sin, but the relationship of the whole cosmos with God was broken because of sin. And what we see in verse 20 is that through Christ's atoning death on the cross, God's holy wrath against our sin was appeased. As our substitute, Christ bore our sin and endured God's just wrath in our place. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we deserved for all eternity. He did that in our place. He received that in our place. And thus, by his blood, he restored peace between us and God. And as soon as Jesus said it is finished, meaning by those words that the sin debt has been paid in full, he bowed his head and it was then that redemption was fully accomplished for all those who would believe. At that same moment when Christ, Christ closed his eyes in death, not only was redemption fully accomplished and guaranteed, but because man's redemption was guaranteed, the restoration of man's kingdom and dominion, the whole earth was guaranteed and it would rise with him. In Romans chapter 8, Paul teaches that currently, even right now this morning, the whole earth is groaning as it awaits, as it, as it awaits what? As it awaits being set free from its bondage to corruption. And later in that same chapter, we find that when Jesus comes again, all his believing ones. Oh, I hope you're believing. All his believing ones will receive glorified bodies. And when we receive glorified bodies at the return of Jesus Christ, the whole heavens and the whole earth will be restored. And we will live with our king, our governor, our savior, and our friend forever and ever and ever in perfect peace. You know, when we try to get to those hills, we're looking for per per perfect peace. It ain't there. Why? It's only in Jesus, that's why. 
because he made peace with God for us through the blood of his cross. But on that day when he returns, he will reconcile all things. Even his enemies will be brought to their knees and be brought into subjection to them. That's why verse 20 says, because of the redemption of Christ, he'll reconcile all things to himself. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. This will be done unwillingly or it will be done willingly and joyously by those who trust in him and love him. Aren't you glad that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for attending the preaching of your word. Thank you, Lord, for doing that which we none of us here in this room can do. And now meet us at your table where we might again not only hear the gospel and the preached word, but see it, feel it, touch it, and mingle with those of your beloved children who are participating in this supper together in joy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, take your hymnal if you would. Please turn to number...